So my, my youngest brother was living with me and selling these Fredo Frog chocolates at school for charity. And my average day, would I'd, I'd wake up and I'd take some sort of painkiller or sleeping tablet and then I'd walk into his room, throw $20 on his bed, grab a box of these Fredo Frog chocolates and over the course of the day, just work my way through an entire box of Fredo Frog chocolates whilst watching YouTube videos. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Rugby union players are known for being an intellectual bunch, but I think even his mates were surprised when Clyde Rathbone left the game and set up a website that allows people to write open letters about the people that have impacted their lives. But then, nothing's particularly ordinary about Clyde. Born in Warner Beach, outside Durban, he captained the South African team to victory in the 2002 Under-21 Rugby World Cup under coach Jake White. He debuted the same year for the Durban Sharks in the then Super 12 competition before taking an offer to join the ACT Brumbies for the 2003 season. And if that wasn't bad enough for his South African country folk, Clyde made it worse the following year, scoring a match-winning try against the Springboks for the Wallabies uh, in 2004. Clyde's rugby career was plagued by injuries. In one period, he missed 15 months of rugby due to successive injuries. After retiring in 2009, he suffered from depression and put on weight. And yet in 2012, he recovered, even returning to play with the Brumbies in the 2013 and 2014 seasons. After his second retirement, Clyde co-founded a website called karma.wiki with his brother Dane. On his karma bio, he describes himself as co-founder of karma.wiki, writer, speaker, curious stardust and free-thinking primate. Advocate of science, reason, free speech, human rights, and irony. Clyde, welcome. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So, can you tell me what it was like to grow up in a small coastal town in South Africa? What are your dominant memories of your childhood? I guess there's two things stand out. One is just how idyllic it was um, being a stone's throw away from the beach and just living where I think must be quite typical for a lot of Australian kids. I think there was a lot of overlap between my upbringing and a lot of Australians that live near the coast. You know, we were on the beach all the time. Um, I viewed school early on as just a kind of an intermission between training and hanging out with my mates. And um, and then the other memory that really stands out is, is the transition um, to, you know, a, a functioning democracy. Mm. And I remember being old enough to know that something significant was happening but not quite mature enough to know how significant. And, you know, I remember things like the first black kid ever being allowed to attend my primary school. And I remember during the 94 elections how the whole country was on tenderhooks. Um, you only had to look across the border to see how transitions of power had led to bloodshed. And mm. I remember stockpiling food with my dad and just knowing that there was a lot of nervousness about that moment and then experiencing that transition and, and having it 
gone so well. Um, it was a very lucky time, I think, to grow up and see and be involved in like a, a part of history, even just as a, as a young observer. It was, I think it has been impactful on me. And rugby's a big part of that, right? Uh, Mandela's willingness to go and cheer on the Springboks is, is seen by many as a real unifying moment there. Yeah, and in the 95 World Cup was just pivotal in my life because, one, it, it was the first time you got the sense that it was a truly united country. Mm. Um, and two, it, it ushered in the professional era. So up until 95, rugby was an amateur game. I went professional afterwards and I was about 14. So from about that age, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. And having that clarity when you're young is, I think, quite rare, um, but very useful. So you obviously didn't start playing 14, though. You, how, how old were you when oh, you As soon as you can hold a rugby ball in South Africa, it's... Uh, <laughs> Where did it come from? Was it you, did your dad really really wanted you to play, or what's, where's the first spark of rugby come from? Um, my dad was a keen rugby nut, um, <laughs> but I guess South Africa in general it's so burnt into the psyche. You know, rugby right. is it's almost a religion, um, except taken more seriously in many in many ways. <laughs> um, and I think you know my grandfather was a South African weightlifting champion. Um, it, it just was what you did. It wasn't the kind of thing that I... I don't think I came from any special circumstance. If anything, my parents were a lot less... Um, a lot less worried about what I did. They just wanted me to be happy. And uh, I, I'm really grateful, actually, for, for their parenting in that sense, that they... There was never... I never felt even the slightest bit of pressure to be a rugby player. Um, but it was just what I wanted to do. And I loved it and was passionate about it. And uh, and just lucky. And lucky to, to be around at a time where you could make that a career and yeah I was also conscious of using it as a vehicle to get out of where I was you know we the, the small town where we grew up uh, it was changing quite rapidly you know the incidence of crime and violence was something that you, you kind of heard through the grapevine uh, when I was really young and then as I started getting older it got to the point where everyone had a story you know that if it wasn't them personally it was their one of their siblings or their parents and uh, it was obvious to me that I didn't want to live there and rugby seemed like the best shot I had at getting to a better place. Yes. And you had pretty young experience of leadership. You were, uh, you were captain of the under-21s under uh, team for that, uh, that, that World Cup victory. How do you think about your kind of leadership style at that very young age we don't normally associate leadership with uh, with under 21s but you obviously <laughs> had to play that leadership give it to someone um, yeah. yeah I think I was just obsessed you know and I think from a yeah, from a coaching perspective they they're looking through the squad and they and they're trying to find someone that is going to be that prototypical follow me mm. let's go boys get this this done type of leader and uh, I think I was that at that stage and was was just obsessed with everything about the game. Loved the training, loved analysing the teams and looking at the strategy and loved delving into you know, how to get the best out of people um, and how to get the best out of myself and just loved every part of the, like, the the bubble of sport and like on the verge of professional sport. So it was easy. It was easy for me to put my hand up, and I remember telling Jake that I wanted the job. Um, mm. So I was wasn't afraid to put my front foot forward and say, you know, I, I think I'm the best man for the job, and I want it. And I think that took him a back a bit of back, and uh, but it worked, and mm. and mm. it was just a great experience. You know, just uh, 
you're looking back, you're not even aware of all the blind spots you have and all the mistakes you make, but um, it was a good launching pad into a professional career. And so then 2003, you, uh, you, you make the transition acro- across to the, uh, the Brumbies. Why Canberra? It's a long story. You know, first of all, the, the transition to Australia itself was interesting because uh, it really stemmed from my family saying every year from when I was about five that this is the year we're going to Australia. And it became a bit right. of a running joke in our family that, oh, you know, this is the year we're going, is it? Right. But that normally means Perth for most of <clears throat> Yeah, it does. And, and then it got to the point where the offer came across the table to join the Brumbies and I, I didn't actually take it all that seriously at first. I went to go and see my dad and said, this is flattering, but obviously I'm going to reject this offer and and play in South Africa. My dream has been to to be a springbok and it seems to be heading in that direction. And he he said, you can do whatever you want, but your mother and your brothers and I are moving to Australia. Um, (laughs) So that kind of put a different spin on the decision and that the way the International Rugby Board rules work, once you're represented one country at national level, you can't represent another. And I knew if I played a test match for the Springboks, which I thought I was on the verge of, and my family moved to Australia, we were essentially going to be separated for however long my career mm-hmm. was. And you know, a very, very close family, and that weighed heavily on the decision-making process. And then the way the, the Brumbies opportunity played out was it just so happened that the offer came through a guy called Anthony Eddy, and Anthony was the coach of the Australian Under-21 team and the Brumbies' backs coach. So that was the connection to Canberra. In those days, it was only three super rugby teams. And my contract was really through the Australian Rugby Union with the opportunity to go to any, any of those three teams. And I came to Canberra first and spent a week uh, just sitting on the fringes observing how the team was run and was blown away, actually, uh, by how different it was from the environment I'd come from in South Africa. Uh, just the... The level of ownership that the players had, um, just the the amount of consultation and collaboration, and you know, it didn't seem to matter if you, if you were a hundred test wallaby or a twenty year old kid in your first contract. Everyone was expected to have a say in how the team was run, and that was really refreshing to me as someone who'd come from a much more authoritarian setup, where the coach was you know jump and you said how high. Uh, to, to see that firsthand was a real big eye opener for me. And a big Where does it come from? And people talk about this a lot about the Brumbies, the kind of the, the much more democratic man- management style, less kind of military top down. Is that to do with the character of the city? Is there some kind of key individuals in Brumbies history that have built that? I think it's a combination of things. I think a big part of it is is being able to start a team from scratch in the professional era. So the Brumbies didn't exist until 96 and they started as a professional team with a clean slate and none mm. of the kind of hierarchical baggage that a lot of other teams have. And it's institutional knowledge that can hold you back sometimes mm. when you're entering into a whole new era. And the Brumbies were just a team that started from scratch like a startup in many ways and had to be innovative because they didn't have deep coffers um, you know, I remember the first team was sponsored by Canberra Milk or something and the players had like one pair of training jerseys and one pair of shorts and <laughs> now, I mean, we're so spoilt. But in those days, I think there was a real sense that um, there's an opportunity to do something great, mm. you know, mm. and Rob McQueen was the coach. He had an extensive background in business. I think he brought a lot of those principles to the Brumbies and really wanted to empower the, the playing group. And then you had a really unique playing group of guys who – uh, you know, when I first arrived at the Brumbies, half, at least half the guys had started playing 
when the game was amateur and then transitioned to professional. So they all had yes. much more sort of worldly life experience. They had jobs. Um, they'd worked, you know, tough jobs and actually had a sense of perspective on how lucky they were to be paid to play sport. Or they'd got degrees and so there was just this and they'd travelled and there's a maturity to that team that I think a lot of professional teams in the, in the current era lack. Um, so I think all those combinations and I think the fact that Canberra just got behind behind them, you know, the Super League uh, debacle kind of left the public wanting mm. the team to get mm. behind. So there was this void in the market and I think all these things played together and then just, you know, um, good luck. Because <laughs> Canberra Stadium at that period we were playing is basically sold, sold out week in, week out. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it, it, now looking back, it's easy to see how fortunate a time it was because, mm. it, as you said, it was sold out every weekend. I just thought that's what happened. You just, you know, every weekend you turn up and there's a full uh, crowd and now I realise how hard it is to develop that. So you're uh, you're only uh, in Australia for a year, and then you're selected for the Wallabies. Uh, what was it like to then be playing for Australia against South Africa? Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, you know, publicly, I was saying all, all the diplomatic, the right things, but internally, it was very conflicting. Mm. Not because I wanted to play for South Africa, but because I think I wanted to be more authentic. I didn't know how to be. In hindsight, I should have said this is very difficult. But at the time, I think I doubled down on, you know, I've left South Africa now and Australia is my new country. And really, I felt like uh, South African and Australian. Mm. And mm. I didn't, it didn't need to be this binary choice between the two. But that's how uh, I felt sort of pigeonholed. And, and that's what I think made it difficult. And then there was just the fact that I didn't really understand the, the media game. You know, people would put a microphone in front of me and ask me, why I left South Africa and I'd give them a bunch of reasons like I've, I've given you and they'd cherry pick a statement about crime and violence and say, oh, Clyde left because he couldn't stand looking at squatter camps or something. Mm. I remember it. And it did, so I became quite defensive about it and, and, and you know, just a lot of free advice in the crowd playing over there, as you'd expect. <laughs> <laughs> so people made banners and there were – no word of a lie, it was front page news every single day of the week leading up to the test. And one of the – Headlines, I think on the Thursday before the game, actually had my words in quotation marks that I didn't say, and it said, Clyde says South Africa sucks. And so there's this kind of this narrative that mm. I was public enemy number one, and and then we lost the game. And you know, two weeks before, we played in Perth and, and won, and it created this you – know, there was a final of the Tri-Nations in Durban, my old hometown. So it couldn't have been more um, sort of – ironically um, positioned in that, you know, here I was five years after leaving high school playing for the Wallabies against Africa in my hometown. would never have guessed. And the two of the bus on the way to the game went past your, your old school, right? Yeah, you've done your homework, I can tell. Um, that was actually a, a totally surreal experience that um, we landed in Durban and then got on a bus to head down the coast for the preparation. And I remember just... <laughs> going past my high school and not actually being able to tell anyone yeah. because it was it, it wouldn't have tra- it wouldn't have translated yes it's just the yes. high school to everyone else but I remember running around there and and it wasn't that long ago yeah you know, that's the thing yeah. it, it all happened so quickly and yeah it was just one of those moments in life where you go it is is this reality <laughs> yeah 
So you've shot to the top of uh, the Australian rugby union uh, hierarchy. You're playing, you're playing for the national team, uh, but you had a lot of challenges with uh, with, with injuries. So when when did that start? Uh, it started in the second season. So 2005, I developed this chronic knee injury that just progressively got worse and worse until you know I had to have surgeries and long stints off. And but that was really the start of it. It was quite early on. It didn't take or rather it took uh, years before the full extent of the injury can reveal itself. And mm. it started off as something that was uh, a relatively minor overuse injury. So we get a bit sore after you know, the kind of niggle that you just get used to playing with and everyone has. And then it started getting painful for longer after training and then it started waking me up at night throbbing and then it started affecting my training and affecting the games. And so it was this kind of insidious process where I just felt like it was slipping, slipping deeper and deeper into the problem. I'm not really sure how to handle it because up mm. until that point, my sort of MO was just to throw more effort at things. You know, no matter what the challenge is, you just go harder. And when it comes to your body and injuries, it's a self-limiting yes. method because you just wear things out. And I went from having a you know inflamed patella tendon to a snapped patella tendon, and that put the brakes on my career in a big way and had to take this big stint off and all of this had this compounding effect on my mental state because here I was so close to the thing I wanted to be doing but slipping further and further away from being able mm. to actually do it <clears throat> so that was very challenging and also kind of highlighted in hindsight my inability to talk about stuff and actually tell the physio hey this is much worse than you know, I might be letting on and or trying to paper over it with painkillers and, and you know, and anti-inflammatories instead of just being, I need a, a couple months off or I need, mm. let it get to the point where, you know, I was running around on one leg. Um, I just was never really told anyone how bad it was. Uh, and, you know, it just seems like a crazy way to address any problem. But that was, that was my mindset that speaking about it was some kind of weakness, um, and that, I think it was why it compounded. Mm. So then you go from starting player for the Wallabies to bench player for the Wallabies mm. to starting player for the Brumbies to bench player for the Brumbies. And then finally, how did that, how did that phase of your first career come to, a, come to an end? I got invited into the office of the then coach and, and he said pretty bluntly that there's no contract on the table for you next year. And I remember just feeling relieved which was surprising to me if someone had said you know, three or four years earlier that your career's going to end you're going to be 27 it's game over and you're going to be feeling relieved about it I would have thought you know what has to happen to get you to that point but that yeah. was the reality and so I left um, not really sure what to do next feeling a real sense of regret and bitterness about how had it, it had ended mm. and terrified about the next step you know all I'd ever wanted to be was a professional athlete and it had ended on terms that weren't my own yes at an age that I wasn't equipped to to deal with that transition so and then you know some other compounding issues I ended up playing some club games in Canberra the last thing I wanted to do was playing rugby but I said I was going to play I thought I'll just get through these five games and that'll be the end of it and in the last game of that season, I got this pretty serious um, facial injury and had to have surgery and got sent home from that 
with a bag of painkillers and sleeping tablets and spent the next few months in my bedroom um, just feeling sorry for myself and slipping further and further into depression. So for a guy who'd been a, a, star, a rugby star in two countries, that's, that's an extraordinary thing just to be, to be sitting in your bedroom. This is um, what you call your Fredo Frog phase, isn't it? <laughs> you have done your homework. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Fredo Frog reference was... So my, my youngest brother was living with me and selling these Fredo Frog chocolates at school for charity. And my average day would I'd, I'd wake up and I'd take some sort of painkiller or sleeping tablet and then I'd walk into his room, throw $20 on his bed, grab a box of these Fredo Frog chocolates and over the course of the day just work my way through an entire box of Fredo Frog chocolates whilst watching YouTube videos or some other time-wasting activity. And went from, I think, a playing weight of about 93 or 94 kilos to 112 kilos pretty quick. The Fredo Frog diet was, <laughs> was a very effective mass game. Recommended for sumo wrestlers. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's highly recommended. Not recommended for your mental state uh, or just your general well-being. And, yeah. and then just and compounded with that you know, poor diet choices, poor sleep, um, just withdrew from all the things that you need to do to be a healthy, functional person. I didn't catch up with friends and, um, yeah, that, that was a really dark period and it took a while to come out the other side. I think, you know, I, I can't really put my finger on a single event, but I remember realising that if I don't take some drastic action, this, I could end up as a statistic. Mm. And it, it was almost like I got scared into some action. It was, couldn't really escape the fact that something was really wrong. I think for a long time, and I think this happens to lots of people who are depressed, is that they you know, rationalise their experience. And I think what I was doing was saying, oh, you know, things have ended badly, you got injured, it's it's a tough time. And you kind of stay there without really taking ownership for climbing out. Mm. And, yeah, I think I got to the point where I realised I had to do something, otherwise this was going to end really badly. And that something was like super simple. It was like go for a walk around the block um, kind of shuffling along and then turned into a slow jog and then I started piece by piece kind of building some momentum and just starting to – at that point it wasn't even on my mind to try and return to playing rugby again. It was just let's get healthy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I had this challenge. It was like, well, why not get into the best shape you've ever been in? And – so then I was like this obsessive reading about nutrition and diet and you know, neuroplasticity and strength and conditioning and just embracing this challenge. And, and then in 2012, a couple of years after I'd retired, got well again, life was pretty good, I really wanted to write something uh, from the perspective of what, asking myself what would have been valuable to someone in my situation, mm. what would I have found valuable to read when I was really struggling and kind of sat down and there's a stream of consciousness blog that I wrote that in hindsight had some cringe worthy bits in it, but it was very raw and very honest and just wrote this thing and, and pushed it out into the internet and didn't really know what the effect was going to be, but it was overwhelming. I got messages from all over the world, um, from people from all walks of life. And one of the people who contacted me was Jake White. And Jake White had been my coach in South Africa when I captained down the 21 side. 
and was then coaching the Brumbies team. And it was a short calling, just said, look, I read your story. If you're interested in coming back and playing, there's no guarantees, but you're welcome to come and, and do a few weeks of training and see how the body feels. And if it feels good, let's worry about the next few weeks. And there was no pressure or obligation. And I originally turned them down. I didn't really feel – I just did come out of the blue. At no yes. point of this whole journey was I planning to play rugby again, but I definitely planted the seed that this was a possibility and the window was going to get smaller because I think I was 30 at the time. Uh, and 30 when you're a winger is pretty old. That's an old man. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I knew I knew if I was going to have a crack at this, it was going to have to happen soon. And I spent the next few months kind of preparing to go back to rugby. And a lot of that pre- preparation was being ready to accept it not working. Yes. And, you know, if the body broke down or the knee just couldn't handle the training load, mm. uh, I wanted to be okay with that. I didn't want to go back into this experience and have the same experience that I had before. I think once I got to the point where I realised that regardless of the outcome, I was going to be okay, then it seemed like uh, I had to do it. And, yeah, it was the best two years of my career. Yeah, I think my favourite line in that uh, blog post that you wrote is, uh, transforming my mind has allowed me to transform my body. Uh, that notion that, that as you as you got your head well, then you're able to use that as a catalyst for, uh, for getting into that top physical shape. Yeah, exactly. What, why were those two years more rewarding than the, than the previous years? I mean, if we look at your stats, I, I, don't, I don't, don't, don't think we'd necessarily take that away, but why does it feel better for, for you? That, uh, that Why are they your favourite two years? I think, I think because the, I just embraced the entire experience and didn't get too fixated on what I... What I was concerned about in my first career, um, mm. which was, you know, how many tries did you score? Did you win or lose the game? Um, you know, did you get the next contract? Did you get the next sponsor? All, all these kind of very self-focused goals. And going back the second time, it was really just wanting to enjoy everything about the experience. And the thing that is actually most valuable about these experiences, and it kind of seems obvious in hindsight, but it's just the personal relationships you develop when you're in a team environment, you get to spend a lot of time in close proximity with some of your best mates, having these peak highs and low experiences. They foster a lot of uh, very strong bonds. And I think I just realized that the second time. And I didn't, I didn't quite connect with that in my, in my first career. So it was going in with a different attitude and a different mindset, mm-hmm. just made the experience much richer the second time around. And you're writing a lot during this period, right? You're writing for The Roar and for yeah. Fairfax. Had you always wanted to write? How did that, uh, how did that come about? My, my mother's an English teacher and my grandmother's an author. So, uh, and I enjoyed history and English in school. And, um, but I didn't have any explicit goals to write until I started doing it regularly and then realised that it's one of the best ways to work out what you actually think. Yes, um, and, and just now I can't imagine not doing it. So it, it was just a great opportunity. Another thing that a door that rugby opened for me um, was to give me the opportunity to write for Sydney Morning Herald and, and The Raw and, and kind of develop as a writer because your first foray into writing is it's going to be embarrassing when you look back and you read your first stuff and you kind of go, jeez, what was he thinking? Um, but you also, and what's interesting about your writing, and I think also if... Um Parallel with cricketer Ed Smith, you you use uh, sport as an entree into talking about the human condition. So it's not just about uh, 
where where the where the ball was kicked and what the final score was. It's it's it, that as sport as a metaphor for life, or sport as teaching teaching us something about living living a good life. Uh, was that where you'd always wanted to get wanted to go with your writing? To, yeah, to exactly. I was kind of viewed as a bit of a Trojan horse experience. I think they're going <laughs> for a match review, and then you know you try and smuggle some stuff in. You have to know your audience enough to give them what they're expecting, mm. but then also give them enough credit uh, that they can be surprised. And I know that, you know, when it comes to writing, I try and just write for myself. Or what I felt, thought was interesting um, a year ago or, or six months ago, and um, that seems to have worked relatively well. So now uh, you've... Uh, you've you run a site which is based around writing, encouraging people to to write these these beautiful letters. So, and I've gone to gone to karma.wiki, and it, it's really it's really striking the the generosity and the humour that people people use when when writing about people who've uh, friends who've made a difference in their in their lives. Uh, where did the the spark for uh, for for that karma website come from? It was a conversation I had with my brother Dane. So Dane. Um was living with me. It sounds like I just had all my brothers living with me at, uh, at some point, which is actually true. Um, sounds a good way of living your life. Yeah, it was, it was, I've got three younger brothers and all four of us and all our partners were living in a big share house. Um, this kind of says more about how many sacrifices my partner has made along the way. <laughs> because it's one thing to do that when you're, you know, 19 or 20. It's another thing to do that when you're 33 or 34. And anyway, my... my Brothers are, are quite a bit younger. The two youngest brothers are a good 10, 12 years younger than me and then Dane is two years younger. And we were just chatting over dinner one night and started talking about the internet and technology and you know, how quickly it's moving now and how uh, for the first time we're grappling with the impact on our day-to-day life. Mm. It's almost like this, this thing has got away from us and now we're playing catch-up and trying to assess how good uh, a use of our time this is and... Dane and I also talked about our parents. You know, like um, I came to Australia in my early twenties. My brothers came when they were still in high school, and my parents came when they were in their late fifties. And their experience of coming to Australia was very different from their kids in the mm. sense that they left a whole life that they'd built over many decades behind. And both my folks were just really good people who had given a lot back. You know, mum was always involved in the local community. My dad's this mad scientist, entrepreneur type, um, eccentric, very interesting man. And they built all this uh, social credit up in our hometown and then had to completely abandon that when they arrived in Australia. And there was no way to kind of export and mobilise what's essentially truth and bring that with them mm. so that other people could gain an insight. And it's not the kind of information they would live on a platform like Facebook or LinkedIn or any of these other places. So it seemed as a, a real tragedy that in this highly transient world where people are more mobile than they've ever been, that we've departed so much from our tribal heritage where our ability to collaborate and cooperate and communicate and to know about each other is mm. key underpinning on why we kind of outcompeted other groups and while we were around. And so it just seemed as though we, we had the technology to solve the problem, but it just wasn't being applied in a smart way. And, and Dane, Dane's insight was that, you know, the, the internet itself and social media almost mimics a child's development of a theory of mind. 
up until I think it's about 18 months or, or two years old. Kids are basically these little megalomaniacs where they think the entire world revolves mm. around them. Then all of a sudden they start to get the sense that these other human-shaped figures actually have their own conscious experience. Yes, yes. And they think that when their parents leave the room they've actually ceased to exist. Don't yeah, they? yeah, uh, that's yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> and, and this is kind of what I think has happened on the internet in that mm. we're having these interactions with people but we're failing to really see them as other human beings and that's because of anonymity and because of internet culture. It's highly combative, it's abusive, it's, it seems like in some places of the internet really encapsulate all the worst parts of humanity. Mm. You have to go to YouTube and just scroll through the comments to see that and it just seemed like there was a, a, a looming evolution of this and that the internet was going to kind of correct and karma was in a, a way to introduce a concept that could be part of that evolution. Mm. And early on, we just were totally ill-equipped to talk about it, the concept. And we were using things like uh, people reviews, which is just a horrible, horrible way to capture what we intended. Because we always felt as though the content was going to be positive. As soon as you focused on strong ID verification and you made sure that people are who they say they are on the platform and have to stand behind what they write, we, we, we always assumed that that would get rid of abusive content. Um, and other things you can build into the system, like the, the kind of initial culture that you develop really sets the trajectory for how that yes. continues. Yeah. And new users to the platform are going to take their cue from the existing users and so on. So we, we always felt that this is going to be a force for good. But then the way we were talking about it, I think, scared people early on. And we really just retracted and pulled all the way back and said, let's stop talking about what this thing could be. Let's just go and build it. Mm. And that is what we did for the next couple of years was, uh, first of all, learn a very steep learning curve um, process of understanding how difficult it is to build a tech company from the ground up when you're a rugby player and a comedian. And because Dane's background, even though he's got a computer science background, he'd been a comedian for five years before we started on this, this karma journey. Um, we had just totally naive ideas about timeframes and like how much this was going to cost and how quickly you could get a, an MVP to the market and and learning all that has, has been super valuable and really interesting. The whole the whole journey has just been the most interesting, fun, and difficult thing I've ever done. So, what are some of your favourite ways in which people have used Karma? Yeah, well, that's a good question because there is a wide variety of letters on the platform and we've got. Letters to mentors, um, you know, teachers, and the, uh, what I, I like the letters that I know are going to surprise the recipient. And the idea that someone is going about their day and then in their inbox there's this invitation to read this letter from someone they may not have heard from in five mm. or ten or twenty years, and in that letter is the kind of things that we don't often say that really should say, and that that's really inspiring to me. And then. We've that's had like eulogies for people who aren't dead yet. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And that's that's how it's been described back to us. You know, some of our writers have said, what's inspired me to write on karma is that I've gone to funerals and learned something really profound about the person that I thought I knew really well for the first time at the funeral. And there's something tragi- tragic about this that yes. we should know that truth. And so those letters, and then there's letters between friends and mums and dads and siblings and there's there's really long-form profound letters, actually letters that are eulogies to people who've passed on, but that letter is then really valuable to 
the surviving family members. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's another part of karma that's exciting for me and, and the founding team is that the letters are going to preserve their value deep into the future. That long after you and I are all gone, you know, generations of your family or my family will be able to read the letters written on karma and get a real insight into the ancestors that you can't easily get. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the things I've been conscious of is not trying to be too prescriptive about what a letter should be. This is a platform that the only real constraints are that you have to be who you, you say you are. You have to write to someone who actually exists. And and it has to be honest. And you sometimes get packets of letters that people put together, right, for, uh, for spe- special events. Is that, is that typically a birthday thing where people will get... Yes, yeah, a lot of the, the triggers for these, they're kind of like... Um, communal expressions of gratitude triggered mm. by a life event like a birthday where the friends and family all come together to write a letter to a recipient and then the letters will arrive as a surprise on the date and those are just i mean the feedback we get from the recipients of these is just you couldn't script better feedback and then people just say the best gift i've ever got it completely blew me away i got it on a friday and i've read each letter like three times over the next few days wow. it was really cool and um that's the kind of thing that when you're in a startup and people who've built their own businesses, especially in a something like a consumer internet space, which is super competitive, you need to feel as though the mission of the company is deep in your bones to get through all the inevitable hurdles and challenges that get thrown your way. And I think that's the thing that has helped the Dane Monish, who's our co-founder, and myself, you know, at no stage in the last four years have we even paid ourselves minimum wage. But you arrive at work in the morning with a big smile on your face and ready to rip in because there's a real sense that this matters. You spoke before about the corrosive impact of uh, social media. How are you thinking about using social media differently in your life? Do you uh, do, And do you think there's uh, useful advice that listeners should take on how to regulate Facebook addiction? Yeah, I mean, there's something we've looked at a lot because obviously we're entering into the space but wanting to do it differently. And I think the, the biggest thing I I would say is that you, you really want to be conscious of the quality of the time. Um, and I think that is what makes karma different is that it's, it's kind of inverting the existing model. The existing model is high frequency, low value. So you spend hours and hours and hours on these things. And if you ask people and researchers do like how they feel after half an hour scrolling through photos on instagram or typically their life is not better if anything it's like negative value they've regressed in some way whereas what i want for karma is that people who spend an hour on it or 20 minutes on it or come away again that was one of the best 20 minute blocks of my whole month or my whole week Mm. uh, or my whole life and i think if we can stay true to that and, and really introduce a a lower frequency, higher value model to the internet and to social media, then I think we're on the right track because I feel like the trend is to, to for the first time, really evaluate that. And I think we should be encouraging people to do that. Like how, I mean, the, the latest research suggests that the average person spends five years of their life now on social media. And you, can get, you, you can get a lot done in five years. And, if, and I, I dare say if you asked people at the end of that five-year block whether it was the best use of their time, I don't think there's many people lying on their deathbed wishing that they'd sent out one more tweet. But I know if I was dying, uh, well, I am dying, but if I was dying faster than I am now, <laughs> that I'd want to 
I'd want to write letters. Mm. I want to um, tell the people that have made my life better that they have and how they have, and I'd want that record to live on. Um, that that's I think is the key difference. And I fall into the traps with the internet myself. I haven't got all of it figured out. You know, I can go on a crazy YouTube rabbit hole where you start off chasing one thing and then three hours later you've watched a bunch of stuff and I think there's some value in that you know it's just one of the ironies of having the entirety of human knowledge at your fingertips Mm, is that mm. you can plug into it any time that you want but then I think it's to the detriment of just being present and conscious of the opportunity cost and to your point, uh, there was a recent study which asked people how much they would have to be paid to forego certain online services. And the typical person say, says they'd have to be paid thousands of dollars to forego email, thousands of dollars to forego search, thousands of dollars to forego maps. But to forego social media, they say they'd only have to forego a couple of hundred dollars a year. And I think that's in part because people look at the, the notion of uh, being someone else locking them out of uh, their social media accounts and think, well, there's a bit of an upside to that as well yeah, as the exactly. downside. Yeah. We're conscious, you know, probably we don't have that five-year figure in the front of our minds, but uh, we're, we're aware of it. Yeah. Uh, where do you see karma going in the next few years? Well, it's a really interesting phase in the life cycle of the company in the sense that we've got a, a much clearer understanding of the hurdles that we have to overcome than we've had in the past. Mm. You know, building a company like this, it is new, it's very iterative. You've got to put something out there and get feedback and then go and, re- and build and you're constantly assessing um, how to navigate forward without having a perfect map. And the next couple of years, and particularly the next 12 months, are going to be exciting because we'll be getting the best information we've ever got. We'll have a much more mature version of the site uh, something that's, I think, much more connects what we say about karma and what the user experience is like. You know, Dane and I and Monish have been saying this is a potentially world-changing idea. It can actually mm. revolutionise how we spend time on the internet. And then I think people's first contact with the product doesn't convey that. It looks like some nice letters written between people and it's kind of inspiring. It might, you know, it might give them a sense that this is a good thing, but it doesn't give you the full profundity of the potential. Uh, I think the, the next iteration of the product, which is June, August, really will. Uh, so that's exciting. Stay tuned. What are you reading and listening to to, uh, to, to shape uh, your management skills but also your, uh, your, your uh, notion as to you know, the good life broadly defined? Um, I go through these periods of not really doing much on the intake side because the output's so high um, and then I when I get the little gaps I'll plug back into podcasts um, podcasts that I enjoy there's one that's uh, it's called the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders that's really interesting and they just get speakers in on like a, a monthly basis to talk about their experience of building a company mm. um, success stories failures and you're getting it from the horse's mouth from the entrepreneurs actually walk the walk and there seems to be a lot of um, repeated patterns in entrepreneurial stories. Uh, and then uh, I... Well, like that uh, early failure that, uh, that you know, you yeah. had that, that career, that, that return to rugby, it seems it's a much more normal a normal story in entrepreneurship than oh, yeah. in professional sport. I mean, that's one of the, the, the questions that when you're 
talking to potential investors and so on, and they'll ask you, you know, what's the biggest failure you've had? And if you haven't got a good answer, we don't have any failure, then that, that's a kind of a red flag in a way. Mm. Um, podcasts are becoming something I've been using more now because you can consume them, consume them on the way here and I don't have to have 30 minutes to myself or an hour to myself um, to knock through them. So I like listening to um, Sam Harris's Waking Up. That's an excellent podcast, really diverse podcast. Um, and you like Sam because, like you, he sort of combines spirituality without the religion bit? Is, that's one of the reasons I kind of came to know about Sam when I was going through my rabbit atheist phase. Um, <laughs> bit of Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, exactly. And, and now feel that there's a, there's a kind of a middle path. Right. And that there's... You're back to Alain de Baton. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's there's value in these myth stories that uh, we shouldn't ignore, and we can tap into these this value without bringing all the baggage that religion has with it uh, into the picture. So Sam's book, um, I think it's called it's called Waking Up: A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, is, is worth a read. Uh, and his podcast is it, it you know, traverses some politics, neuroscience, um, I guess cutting edge science, things like AI, and um, so that's cool. Uh, and then I listen to Joe Rogan, um, but that's more sporadic and really dependent on the guest. Um, and I feel like with Joe, you've got to listen to everything in like one and a half, two times speed. <laughs> to kind of get through the long periods of you know, little value. Um, I just assumed everybody listened to everything at one and a half speed. Right, right. No, <laughs> Apologies no. to everyone like, currently listening oh, to this at uh, nine speed. <laughs> the problem I have with podcasts is my retention is not as good as if I read it. So it would be nice. I was talking to a friend the other day, and there's no distinction for him whether he listens to it or reads it. Whereas with me, the more dense the content gets, the more I feel like I need to actually read it for it to stick which is a pity because it would be nice if I could just listen to everything. Um, who's the other guy that I listened to? Da uh, Hardcore History. Uh, I forget. Dan Carlin is the guy's yes, name. That's but amazingly a, long, right? These three Yeah, they're long. epics. Yeah. I mean, you need to be on holiday. Yes, I, I listen yes. to them when I go to New Zealand and, and for like Christmas or something and I just you've got eight hours to retrace the steps of like the Han and, and it's, it's, it's a deep dive into critical moments in history that mm. I just kind of embarrassed by how little I knew about these things. Yes, um, yes. But he's brilliant. Uh, the other one is called 10% Happier. His name's the guy who hosts the podcast is Dan Harris. Uh, no relation to Sam Harris, but uh, it's more around meditation and mindfulness. Mm. Uh, that's worth a listen. Um, I think that's it. There's a few others. Tim Ferriss. But like I said, I feel like I go through periods of intake and then, um, and then just, just getting work out. And yes. I think if you go too far to one or the other, uh, it's not a good thing. So I try and uh, – like I said, the podcasts are just – I don't know what people were doing before they were around <laughs> because it seems <laughs> like everyone's on them now. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? Yeah, it's one of those questions that I – the more I think about it, the more impossible that conversation seems <laughs> because the the people involved are so different. And 
You're twice his age for a start. Uh, yeah, and and I'm not sure that the 18-year-old version of me would respect the 37-year-old version. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about this, and you know, I think it, it would be very difficult to to get anything that was really prescriptive across. So it would be more general advice. It's something that I think would be useful would just to be to to read more broadly. And when I was 18, it was all about sport. Mm. It was this very narrow focus on how to be a better rugby player. And then you start getting older and you realise there's a whole world out there and that rugby and sport is just one small component of a much bigger picture. And I think it would have been useful to me to have gained that perspective earlier. So just reading more broadly would have been really useful. Would you tell him to meditate? Like I said, I, I think it would be valuable for 18-year-old me, but the, the chance of 18-year-old me meditating, <laughs> virtually zero. When are you most happy? Uh, when I'm in nature with my loved ones. Um, it's funny, when you strip things down, you make them as simple as possible. That, that tends to be when you're most present. And that's one time. But then that also has kind of a life cycle. And I find myself on holidays or these moments where there's no real reason to not be happy pining for some sort of struggle or challenge or so there's kind of two times one is when I'm totally disconnected and really present and the other is when I feel as though I've got some challenge to overcome what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy um mentally is to surround myself with good people and have interesting conversations like the one we've had um, and learning something new has, has been really useful. I'm a very poor, failing meditator, but I, whenever I manage to string a stint together, I have this recurring thought that I should be doing this all the time. Um, so meditation is something that I, I wish I was better at and I'm working at it, but uh, I don't fail to notice the positive benefits when I'm doing mm. it more regularly. Um, it's kind of like that, that irony, you know, that wisdom is just the ability to take your own advice. If people <laughs> ask me about uh, meditation and I'm a huge advocate for it, but then I find myself slipping off the wagon. And then physically you're doing this Praxis thing with Tom Emerson? Oh, so do you know, do you know the Emersons? I only know it from your website. Oh, okay. I've uh, just, just read about it. Uh, it's got a fascinating picture there, but I know nothing at all about Praxis. So, so well, I guess physically uh, I just try and do some movement. I'm much less uh, concerned about what it is these days, you know, whether it's gym or a run or a hike or most days try and do something. Um, mm. That's really good for me. Uh, Praxis is a gym in Canberra that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in you know, exploring movement. Um, it's taking elements from gymnastics and elements from a whole bunch of different disciplines and sort of knitting it together to create something that's really interesting. Um, so you're doing things like handstand practices and ring work and a lot of ground-based animalistic movements. And um, I, I find it as someone who's always for a long time just trained to be good at rugby to kind of explore different types of things and also to be a novice again in something. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at, at whatever praxis is, this movement training. But I like their philosophy. Their philosophy is, <clears throat> I'm paraphrasing from the website, but it's how to improve the experience of being in a body. And I think that's worth 
taking on. Do you have any guilty pleasures? The internet is my guilty pleasure. Uh, I sort of touched on it already. You know, mm. I I know the dark side of it, but I I do find myself drawn to the next bit of knowledge and what is you know, what is this unexplored little thing and and yeah YouTube I think because the information is being packaged up and made more readily available and easy to, to digest than ever before so easy if you're someone who's curious to just constantly be going back to the next thing but I'm trying to be better at keeping the opportunity cost front of mind that Yes, this is valuable, but is it the most valuable thing I could be doing with this hour? Um, but the answer is my guilty pleasure. And finally, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, in terms of experiences, I went to Maastricht in the Netherlands in 2013 to visit my brother who was studying over there. And I had a psychedelic experience on psilocybin it, it wasn't mushrooms it was what are the what are the things that they grow under the ground but are not mushrooms um but the, the, anyway the, the the primary compound or the active compound this is psilocybin it's the same as magic mushrooms and that was a fascinating experience uh, in terms of just giving me an insight into the potential for states that I didn't even know existed and as someone who's always been relatively um, well is conservative on the whole drug issue I'd read about psilocybin and I was curious and it's legal in the Netherlands you can walk into um, what seems like a chemist and they they give you a menu and they say well what sort of trip are you interested in and I was you know give me the, the weakest possible dose is what I said and had a, had a really profound experience that uh, really opened my eyes to just how influential ego is or was mm. in my life uh, in a way that I had struggled to get from other methods. So, so that experience was just extremely eye-opening. Um, because there's those Timothy Leary experiments in the 1960s where they go back to people 20 years later and they say that their their trip experience, their LSD experience is still one of the top couple of experiences in their lives. And yeah. they talk about, I mean, I don't have any personal experience of this, but they talk about it as, as giving them a sense of the unity of things. Uh, exactly, yeah. Uh, these, there seems to be these emergent patterns in the way that people describe these experiences and everything you just said, it maps onto my Mm. experience of this sense of interconnectedness with everything and a real appreciation for the value of the conscious experience of other beings and not just, you know, it's so hard to break out of this um, first person selfish experience uh, or, um, yeah, and then actually in that state, there doesn't seem to be a rational distinction or rational reason to prioritise your own happiness over someone else's. And it's very difficult to live that way in our day-to-day sober states. Mm. But having a contact with that experience for a couple of hours just shows you that it's possible. And, yeah, I came out of it with just viewing the world through a very different lens 
and you know quickly slip back into old habits but at least I have this reference point that shows you what's possible and shows you how valuable it can be to reconnect with that experience what a fascinating and unexpected way of ending the conversation uh, Clyde Rathbone uh, writer speaker curious stardust and free-thinking primate thanks for being on the good life podcast today thanks Andrew cheers Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.